Tonight, uh, Labour MP John Trickett, uh, you can see somewhere in the speakers, is here to talk about the fall of the New Left in the 1980s and the transformation of the Labour Party under Tony Blair and New Labour in the 90s and 2000s. Um, in the last two sessions, uh, so as a preview, we're going to move on from Leo and Colin's new book, and we're going to compare the experiences of the movement around Corbyn with international examples like Bernie Sanders' campaigns and Syriza in Greece, um, as well as a final webinar on the coronavirus crisis with Sam Gimbert. Uh, this series is co-hosted by The World Transformed and Verso Books. Uh, we'll be running these calls every other Thursday night at 8 p.m. So remember to keep this time free, uh, same virtual place. And I think we currently have more than 200 people on the call, which is amazing. Thank you so much for joining us. And my name is Mia. And I'm Kyla. Um, so in the session two weeks ago, we talked about the New Left Project in the Labour Party and its attempt to build a bridge between parliamentary and extra-parliamentary activism in the 1970s, as well as transform the Labour Party itself. So in this session, we're going to look at what happened in the Labour Party after the 1983 election defeat, which was a pivotal point that marked a turn away from extra-parliamentary extra activism and the weakening of the left in the party, along with the adoption of a new kind of managerialist approach to the Labour Party. Um, after, two, after nearly two decades in opposition, when Labour finally did get into power under Blair, it had conceded so much ideological and economic terrain to the Conservatives that it was basically a different party altogether. So in today's session, we're going to look at how that happened and how this reflected a crisis of the left in the UK more broadly during this time. Uh, we're really lucky to be joined by John Trickett, who was uh, a councillor in Leeds City Council in the 80s and very active in the anti-fascist and anti-war movements before being elected as an MP in 1996. So it would be really great to hear it from his perspective. Um, and as we did last time, we're going to run tonight's webinar as a long question and answer session. We're going to talk through parts of the book with Leo, Colin, and John by asking a few questions um, of our own to start off. But after that, we really hope that you'll do the work for us. Uh, that's you know, an important part of being on the left. This is all about a collective effort. Um, when questions come up for you as the speakers are speaking, please post them in the chat. Uh, we'll be watching the questions as they arrive and we will try our best to include them in the discussion. We plan to spend about the first 45 minutes or so on the situation in the 80s through the 2000s, and then the remainder of the time bringing things up to date and looking at the relevance of those issues for the movement today. So as we've already said, tonight's speakers are going to be Leo Panich and Colin Lathe, who are the authors of Searching for Socialism, the project of the Labour New Left from Ben to Corbyn. And we're also joined by John Trickett, who's a member of parliament for Hemsworth in West Yorkshire. Um, okay, so I'm gonna kick off with the first question, uh, mostly for Leo, but also for John. Uh, so let's start with the aftermath of the 1983 election defeat. Uh, purely within the Labour Party, this didn't look like a total defeat of the left on the surface. Hinnick was from the soft left, he quoted Lenin and Gramsci in his speeches to justify his position, and he got new left support with the idea that there could be some kind of new Benism without Ben, uh, after the 1983 defeat. Um, there were also experiments such as the Greater London Council led by the New Left. But ultimately this new direction of the party, as well as in the unions and in society, would totally undermine the left. Uh, so in the book you say that during this time the party actually faced a choice between moving decisively to the left or drifting to the right. Uh, can you outline what were the most decisive factors 
both in the failings of the New Left project itself, as well as a backlash from the power holders in the Labour Party that caused this rightward shift in the 1980s and laid the groundwork for New Labour in the 1990s. You have about five minutes or a little bit more each. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll try to address that in uh, uh, three or four points. Uh, I, I think the crucial thing to recognize, uh, you can hear me, I hope. Uh, I think the crucial thing to recognize is that Kinnock's succession uh, as leader to foot in 1983 after the election defeat um, had been rooted in uh, the election of foot who, Kin who Kinnock became very closely aligned with uh, in 1981 in the context of Ben's attempt to become deputy leader. Uh, and his narrow defeat by Healy. And the reason Ben had stood was to validate the reforms that had been introduced around democratization of the party. Uh, Kinnock had, at that moment, he had been very popular as a figure uh, uh, at fringe meetings of the new left through the 1970s. He was the great jokester um, and, and he and Skinner were often the most popular people at, at, at fringe meetings at Labour Party conferences. Um, uh, and, and Kinnock had taken a very clear position to join foot in an alliance with the center right of the party, above all with Healy against the Labour left, to put a stop to the attempt to democratize the party. Kinnock uh, continued to embrace some of the policies that uh, Foote had accepted in the 1983 or even further in the 1983 manifesto, above all, uh, nuclear disarmament, uh, reneging on Polaris and Cruz, um, keeping some orientation to nationalizations and a commitment to full employment. After the Labour government, Healy and Callahan had abandoned it, had said Keynesianism was over. Um, so he was popular, and, and it is important to recognize that Eric Heffer, who stood for the new labor left, who had been with Ben in the Department of Industry, the most prominent figure, and running against Kinnock, only obtained 7% of the constituency votes. And I, I think it's very important to make the comparison between then and now in this sense, because I think that Starmer's popularity with the membership, including a good deal of the young membership, around the European Union, around the second referendum, is very similar to the kind of support that Kinnock was able to secure, even though he was turning against the, the Labour New Left, fundamentally, especially around democratization of the party. He was supported in this, one has to recognize, by the Communist Party. Uh, that reflected, uh, that was reflected in Eric Hobsbawm introducing him with fulsome praise at fringe meetings at Labour Party conferences, and with Hobsbawm writing pieces every year featured in The Guardian, praising Kinnock against Ben and the Labour New Left and against 
uh, Ken Livingston and the Greater London Council. Uh, and presenting Kinnock as uh, a figure uh, who in policy terms reflected a harder left position. In addition to that, uh, a significant portion of the Benite left around the Labor Coordinating Committee, including MPs um, who had been associated with Ben like Meacher um, uh, and others. Uh, Peter Hain was another, uh, uh, Blunkett was another, uh, shifted in, to support Kinnock, uh, saying that the democratization of the party issue was not very important. The crucial thing was that Kinnock believed in a transformation from capitalism to socialism. And what we needed to do was concentrate on policy. But this was extremely naive and it was born of wishful thinking. Because what Kinnock had done was to, as Foot had done, was to enter into an alliance with the center right, which dominated the shadow cabinet. And Healy made it very clear that the shadow cabinet needed to be independent of the party and independent of the national executive committee. And insofar as that was the case, Kinnock was on a road, regardless of what he believed in terms of those policies, uh, how genuinely he held to them. He was on a road to the accommodation of those in the leadership of the party who were fundamentally oriented to the American empire in terms of foreign policy, therefore fundamentally against any break around nuclear policy. And they had expressed, expressed that in the election campaign against the party manifesto, uh, but also because their fundamental position on policy, on economic policy, was an attempt to revive the old failed corporatism. That is a promise from the unions that they would engage in wage restraint. And, and uh, that the bourgeoisie was no longer interested in this by this point. Um, they simply had abandoned it. Uh, they didn't want to compromise with the unions in that partnership. They had opted for monetarism as the way of resolving inflation uh, and, and had opted for high unemployment and breaking the unions as a way of resolving inflation. And Kinnock was drawn into that, but not only Kinnock. Increasingly, those from the labor left who had seen in him as someone who was still a socialist, increasingly were drawn to that position as well. What that you were left with in that context was not only a, a marginalization of the labor left in terms of the democratization of the party issues, but a turn of the party leadership led by Kinnock against activism of all sorts. Now it was expressed in his disdain for the activism in the minor strike, his, the distancing he took from it, uh, and even more so a little later in the revolt over the poll tax. Uh, against Thatcher at the end of the 1980s. So it was a turn of the party precisely against the activism that the new labor left had tried to infuse the party with. Uh, and that was expressed itself, that expressed itself in what was left of the new left's energy, 
which was now largely at a local level and largely seen around the Greater London Council. Labour MPs since 1982, since before the election, had above all defined that as the loony left. Uh, and, and they continued to do so after the 1983 election. Um, so what you were left with was a party that was more centralized in social democratic centralism in the party machine and the party leader than perhaps it had ever been. And with a marginalization of the left greater than it ever been. And insofar as corporatism was not a viable policy, uh, the path was then paved to a Blairism which said, no, we don't want a partnership with the unions. What we want is to be fully on board with a marketized, globalized capitalism. And insofar as that involves us breaking with our image as a class party, that's where we will go. Kinnock took some steps in that direction, but he was more laborist in his orientation but he paved the way to Blairism. John, do you want to come in there? Let me just uh, reflect. Uh, so I think it's my 50th or 51st year, year of activism in some form or another on the left of the party, occasionally uh, getting compromised as we all do from time to time. Look, I, I, think the, I think to understand 83, uh, we just need to just remember quickly where we were in the 70s. There'd been the Attlee Settlement, which was a labour achievement, um, which had run its course by the mid-1970s. Labour found itself in office, but there was a crisis of capitalist profitability uh, in British capitalism wider than that. And that, that then was producing a problem of a fiscal crisis to how you fund the services which were provided by the state. Tax revenues were falling, expenditure was rising, there was inflation, productivity was falling, there was the usual British problem and a crisis of capital. That had to be resolved. And Labour was in power. And those of us who were around will remember the rising tide of working class activism in the 1970s, and which posed problems for capital, but also for the Labour government. By the time we got to 1979, the Labour right, which was the leadership of the party and the, the government at that time, were completely exhausted because we were governing without an overall majority. But we were exhausted physically, but they were also exhausted intellectually. The right had no solution to capitalism's problems. But there was a left, an emerging left view, and it was captured in two separate things. One was uh, the social contract, which there isn't time to talk about, but it seemed to me it had radical elements within it, other than it excluded working class participation, which gives us a problem. But secondly, the alternative economic strategy, those two things together offered a vision for a transition from the Atlee settlement into a new settlement, uh, which would take us through into quite radical transformation. Um, now, uh, we lost the election. The crisis for the Labour leadership uh, was clear and there had to be a change of leadership. Uh, that then happened. Now, if you, if you recall those who were around or if you've read your history book, in 1981, Ben decided to challenge Healy as deputy leader. 
Kinnock played a crucial role in tying the centre-left with the right around Healy's deputy leadership to defeat Ben. But notwithstanding that, we got within about half a point, I think, of winning that election. I remember chairing a huge meeting for Tony Ben in 1981, uh, Ben for deputy. I chaired that meeting. The town hall in Leeds has about 2,000 people, but there were people right out into the street. It reminded me when I saw the Jeremy uh, rallies later, that's what had happened under the Ben insurgency. We got very, very close, but we were defeated. And we then um, went into two things which seemed to me to be critically important. The first is the big bang. There'd been the Falklands War as well, which had changed a bit the nature of domestic politics. The big bang was Thatcher's first big step to move on from the Attlee consensus and the Attlee uh, economics, the sort of historic compromise, if you like, which Attlee had introduced into a new world. And the big bang and the introduction of financialization of the economy and the growing nature of uh, the class, the new class structures and the working class, his relationship to production in a post-industrial world all began to emerge. And that made the, that made the, um, the alternative economic strategy no longer fit for purpose. And I think at that point, because we'd opened the Britain up to a world economy and the AES, the automatic strategy, depended on a different vision for how British governments should work, the British state should operate. I, I believe there was a huge intellectual defeat for the left at that time, which we've never recovered from. Never. We've never found a transitional uh, programme um, which would take us beyond the existing uh, capitalist settlement into a new into a new world, which was popular. And I think I can say that that was part of the inner core, which ran the Labour Party along with Jeremy for the last few years. I don't think we'd resolve the intellectual problem which that poses. But the second thing was the minor strike, which was just, Leah just touched on. The minor strike, I was elected to become a councillor in the middle of the minor strike. For those who didn't live for it, it, it it's possible, to, it's very difficult to understand the emotional, the emotional and political and social experience, the spasm which the country went through. And of course, Kinnock, as I, I won't follow Leah's description of Kinnock, but Kinnock and the Labour leadership held its nose and walked really away more often than not from the miners. And that was a, a major moment where the Labour movement was, had been, in my view, as I've said, the left had been defeated intellectually and then the left in the industrial struggle, this rising tide of working class activism, which I described briefly, was defeated at that point. They were two major turning points. And I don't think we recovered uh, completely, though the left was always there. But what did the left do? Because it learned the lesson of the defeat of Ben and other left uh, candidates in this way, because if you remember, the votes were casted a third, a third, a third, if I'm, if I'm right. A third for the, the CLP, the members, a third for the PLP, and a third for the trade unions. And we won it amongst the members. We won it quite, quite significantly on the members, which generally, we generally do for the left. But uh, the vote was overturned, really, by big majorities for the right in the PLP section and in the trade union section. The left became preoccupied to some extent with, therefore, internal electoral uh, democratic reform of the party and the movement you can understand why 
but we're preoccupied by it. Not, not all of us, but many, many were preoccupied by it. I mean, I was a part of the CLPD. We all were, I guess, at that time. They never thought it was the be all and end all. Of course, it wasn't understood in the wider, the wider labor movement or the wider working class or the wider society. And the left became preoccupied with that and also the fight uh, for the uh, for the GLC, and then I then moved on to become leader of Leeds, and we were fighting Thatcher's attack on local government uh, through that time. So I think that's all the background to all of this. Now, I just want to just come forward to the present day briefly, because 2008 marks the end of the second settlement, post-war settlement. The first settlement, 45 through to 75, maybe, then a prolonged period until we get the Thatcher settlement. And then by 2008, you get the breakdown of the, of the Thatcher settlement. It's not simply about the banks. It's about a crisis of overproduction, underconsumption, and various other things, which we haven't got time to talk about, which leads to a second prolonged period in which capitalism is, is disoriented. The capitalists, the ruling class are disorientated. And I think uh, it then emerges partly through the debate about the, the links with the European Union, and uh, capitalists trying to find another way forward. And that's basically uh, with the banking crash, what's uh, a description, if you like, of what's happened in recent years. Inside the Labour Party, it became complex, uh, quite a complex pattern. There has been a rising tide of activism during those years as people became dissatisfied with the Thatcher, the Thatcher settlement. Labour, the Labour left were able to build on that with the, uh, with the victory of Jeremy, but the same thing, the centre-right, the centre-left of the Labour Party, so-called, acts in a way, as they did then, as a break on the socialist transformative agenda which the left has. Not simply a break, but actually wrecks the possibility of a transformational Labour government, as we've seen in the leaked report. That's kind of brings us where we are now. I seem to have missed out the the, uh, the Blairite years, which you might want me to talk about, because for a short time, I worked in number 10 and, and the cabinet office under, under Blair and Mandelson. And then later I worked in the number 10 again for Gordon Brown. And we might, you might want to ask me about that later, maybe. But that's how I see the, that's how I see the long history of the, of the last uh, 30 years, 40 years. Thanks, John. And we're going to follow up on, with you on lots of those things as well later in kind of questions that come later on. Um, so before we come on to the next question, um, I want to plug the TWT Supporters Network. Um, we've had 70 new supporters since we started doing these calls, which has been a huge help in enabling us to continue putting them on. Uh, we now really want to scale up the work over the summer, but that's only going to happen with your help. Uh, the current crisis means we can't guarantee receiving the funding we, we usually rely on to continue our work. So if you think political education like this is important and are in a position to do so, please donate the equivalent of one hour's wage per month at theworldtransformed.org slash support. Uh, that's theworldtransformed.org slash support. And that link is, that link's in the chat. Uh, if you didn't hear it from us a couple of times, it's right there. You can click on it right now. Um, I did, Leo. I saw your finger, uh, but we're going to move on to the to the next one and get you in on the on the next um, on the next question. I think we'll try to start with uh, Colin on this one. So during the last session, we talked about how the new left tried to reform the internal processes of the Labour Party, and John touched on this as well. 
Um, so for example, uh, championing mandatory reselection. Uh, but this, we also talked about how this process largely failed. In contrast, um, as we read in the chapters for this week, Tony Blair was able to basically generate a total reworking of how the Labour Party functioned during the 1990s. Um, and there was some of that reworking earlier too, um, most iconically doing away with Clause 4 and the commitment to state ownership, uh, but also minimizing the role of the trade unions generally um, and the capacity, for example, of conference to set uh, policy that was then followed through on. Um, so can you talk a bit about how Blair implemented this managerialist restructuring uh, and how it then affected politics in the party? Uh, reflect on what you just, what Colin was just about to develop, I think, which is this question of electability. I mean, look, I mean, clause one of the Labour Party constitution says uh, we exist, at least in part, to elect a PLP and clearly working people going back before the Labour Party existed came to the view that uh, they needed their own party to legislate and to begin to bring social change into existence. And, I, and obviously we share that view, you need to elect a government. We lost, as we know, we lost several elections. And what uh, happened was Blair convinced us, uh, or convinced the party, that our head, our heart might beat on the left, but our head tells us we've got to move to the right. And it's very interesting because our, I've been talking a lot recently about a pamphlet, uh, which may not be remembered very much, called Southern Discomfort written by Giles Radice, the MP for um, Durham in 92. What Radice does, he, say, he says, look, he said, the demographic character of Britain is changing and the organic uh, composition of the working class is very different to what it was. And what matters now is the key demographic group we need to win in order to get a majoritarian Labour government, uh, what's called the aspirational Southern cohorts, Mondeo Man, if you remember, and all that kind of stuff. And he uh, makes a convincing case that Labour to create a majority has to win votes in the South and seats in the South. <clears throat> but when you read the pamphlet carefully, what he's actually suggesting is a major ideological and organizational cultural shift in the whole Labour movement away from its traditional commitment towards uh, transformation of capitalism into a socialist society. And, but he does it, he does it on the back of trying to persuade the party that to win an election and de defeat these bastard Tories, what you have to do is to win this demographic group. And that's quite a convincing argument, the first part of the argument. The second part of the argument to ditch your policies and your, and your ideology it's a different matter, as I think we can now see, because the crucial assumption, which was explicit, both in by Giles Radice, but then by Blair, was Northern voters and working class voters who have traditionally voted Labour have nowhere else to go except to vote Labour, so we can take their votes for granted. And then what we have to do is reach out to these other, these other social forces in society. Now, that simply was untrue then, and it's been proved empirically, it's been tested to bloody death, but that is simply untrue. People do have alternatives. Working people are not dense. They know when a party is kind of thinking we need to look at other people, we can take your vote for granted, and they stop voting, or they stop voting for you and vote for others. It's very dangerous to leave a social group 
unrepresented who created a party because other forces will prey on them from the extreme right. And the Brexit party, Farage, and some of the other ghastly, um, monstrous uh, right-wing activities have been trying to feed on those social groups. So we've now got a northern discomfort problem, and but obviously, uh, which we failed uh, in 2019, we have to be honest, um, over the problems with Brexit, which we didn't manage to reconcile the various elements of the demographic base. But this imperative to find a way of getting a majoritarian Labour government is central to the Labour Party's existence. But it's it cannot be uh, it cannot. It cannot be that we can uh, think we can somehow create a majority by abandoning our principles. I personally am convinced there's a way of being principled and creating a majority. And a final point then, the thing I referred to earlier about the alternative economic strategy, the defeat, the intellectual defeat of the left, which we haven't yet overcome. How do we create a program which is really transformational, truly transformational, which is also popular and which can be expressed in the vocabulary of the man and woman in the street. They, that is a central intellectual task, an organizational task, which we have to engage in. I'm very optimistic about it, but it's not as easy as it sounds. And I think I'll just leave it at that point. Okay, we're gonna, we're gonna go on to Leo and hopefully we'll get Colin back in shortly um so leo if you if you want to follow on from that with you had something to say anyway but i think just to just i think you in your book also kind of like trace this ebbing of labor's working class support to this time as well so if you could talk a bit more about that and just tell us like to what extent was it that labor the labor party was just in a, a kind of adapting to this inevitable new reality or to what extent was it actually just engineering this shift and leading the way um and what were the effects of this Okay, so I was simply going to say, look, as it turned out, the Labour Party was not in government for two decades in any case. So the argument that you had to win elections immediately didn't hold. And had the Labour left had the patience, had there been a broader left had, that it had the patience to see that transformation of the party through, you could have possibly been re-elected on the basis of a level of support, a degree of party involvement in class reformation of the time that the kind that John is talking about, that would have made things very different. And Colin is right, therefore, to say the immediacy of winning the next election turns the party away from doing the things necessary to be a socialist party, to convince people of the viability of socialist policies and doesn't necessarily get you elected. I think that's the lesson of the long period from Kinnock to, to, uh, uh, to Blair, to Blair's election in 97, which is of course an election uh, based on uh, an adherence to the third way, which is in no sense a third way. It's not a return to the mixed economy. Uh, it's will, it, it's an embrace fully of the dynamics of a market-driven capitalist globalization. I'll let Colin get in rather than take his time. Yeah, I'll be very quick because I may only get half a minute before I'm shut up again. But um, yeah, you asked, I'll skip the question of, of, of 
the, the decision that the modernizers made to because they didn't they were not they were not socialists they, they embraced the capitalist project so what did they do to the party rather than go into the detail for my money there are three things that stand out first was they were determined that the annual conference should not have an influence on policy partly because mainly because that would, the membership was way to the left of them, was, would, have, would have pushed for socialist measures or social democratic measures, which they didn't want. Secondly, they were convinced and not irrationally that the mainstream media always had a field day on splits. The minute there was a debate at the conference, this became a split in the Labour Party and they were, and the, electorally that was too high a price to pay. Secondly, I think this is under, under remarked on, but to my mind, it's very important. There was the demand that all MPs should be on message. MPs were not allowed to have individual positions on anything. They had to take the line from the leadership and that was closely monitored. And in a way you might say the party's core commitment came to be spin. In place of clause four, you had a commitment to absolutely managing the message. And that legacy has passed through into contemporary politics in an incredibly damaging way. And that's something else that the left will have to fight against and overcome. And the third major point was to decide after the 1997 election that they couldn't afford to allow local parties to nominate candidates for parliament if this was going to produce people on the left. So managing the control of who could run, become a Labour MP became very, became critical. And the effect of that was that you finished up with a party when in by 2015, in which you had four socialists in the parliamentary Labour Party and a significant contingent of anti-socialists. And this, the irony of that is that at the very moment when the limitations and failures, comprehensive failure of the, <coughs> new reality model that the new that the, the new labor had made the touchstone of all policy making when that was convincingly and comprehensively broken you had a parliamentary party without people other than that four of whom john is one really with the energy and imagination to drive for the valid alternatives that were already present in Labour Party thinking and much more on the left, and which became the 2017 manifesto. And that lacked behind it the drive that you needed to have within the parliamentary Labour Party. On the contrary, it was constantly dragging its feet against that. The other day we were talking about uh, public ownership and, <clears throat> and uh, democratic management, and it, it was emerging from one somebody who'd been closely involved in it that getting even a mention of public ownership past the NEC past the PLP members on the NEC was was a very tricky thing to do just even to have it mentioned so that legacy has is a very very critical one which we need to be honest about thanks Colin I'm glad to get you in on that. And that, those are really good, um, really good points. Um, want to do maybe one or two more questions just on the on the 90s. Um, and maybe another one for for Leo and and uh, and Colin and have John come in as well. Um, so Margaret Thatcher 
famously called Tony Blair her greatest achievement. Uh, we all know this quote. It's it's you know it's it's great and and sad. Um, you you've written in the book that new labor in a way understood the new economic conjuncture and the transformations of capitalism very well in a way, right? Both domestically and internationally. Only they chose a strategy of accommodation to these changes um, that, as they said, could also you know produce gains for workers and lift people out of poverty. So let finance and privatization rip and use the proceeds to lower poverty, support education as the way out this kind of um, third wayism. Um, and we did have a question in the chat about how much, you know, there was sort of explicit uh, influence from someone say like Anthony Giddens or, or, or others um, in this. But, you know, obviously as we've seen in hindsight, the reality was very different. We've had long run uh, wage stagnation over decades. We have growing inequality in both income and wealth um, and the worsening conditions uh, for increasing sections of the working class. Um, and then all of this coming to a head in 2008 in the financial crash. So what was New Labour's economic strategy? I know if you could pick some of that apart, what was New Labour's economic strategy? You know, what were its achievements, sort of quote unquote, and, and its contradictions? And basically what, why was it bound to fail both on its own terms and on sort of ours? Uh, Maybe Leo, I, I, I see I, Leo's, yeah. I think it's crucial here uh, to recognize, and, and I think I may disagree with John here, uh, that the image that was painted of the new labor left was that it was uh, old socialists. It was in favor of old centralized socialist state planning, um, that it, was, it didn't understand globalization, et cetera. And this was a deliberate misrepresentation and people on the left in the Labour Party today are going to have to get used to a similar misrepresentation, which is about to take place. Uh, the new Labour left was above all committed to democratizing the state. That was seen at the municipal level and it was seen in terms of what was being pushed by Ben inside the Ministry of Industry. The alternative economic strategy was not irrelevant to globalization, on the contrary. It was focusing on the most central aspect of what was to come, which was free capital movements. And how do we prevent the movement of capital? And that, that was crucial. It was addressing the necessity, perhaps, for temporary import controls, at least a degree of trade planning. The labor left was, the new labor left, was very sensitive to the dynamics of globalization. Uh, and, and therefore, the, the way they were traduced as not having any perspective on that was one of the ways in which the left was discredited, and I think very, very unfairly. They had a sense, quite rightly, that when Kinnock and the rest of the leadership accepted European and monetary union, they were fully accepting unemployment, the end of Keynesianism, monetary control over fiscal policy, all of which has proven to be the case in the EU in terms of the way in which deficits have not been allowed. It was the new labor left, it seemed to me, that perceived what was happening in terms of the direction towards globalization whereas the center of the party, including all of those around Marxism today and the fancy CP stuff, were increasingly accepting images of post-Fordism and so on, 
which were premised on the notion you could retrain workers to compete with Vietnamese women working at a dollar a day. And in that way, you could have a wealthy working class uh, that would fund through its taxation, which it increasingly was burdened with, a welfare state. All of that was fundamentally misconceived. And yes, they were getting it from Giddens, of course, um, but in a disdain for socialism as passe. And it's gonna be very, very important that the left today not get driven away from the understandings that led to the 2017 manifesto and the 2019 manifesto. Uh, those aspects of its policies are crucially important to retain uh, and should not be given up, nor should one be allowed to be painted into the notion that this is old style socialism. On the contrary, it is a relevant democratic socialism for the 21st century. Yeah, I'd, rather than a, a go any kind of a list, I would just say we should look at what's happening in the treatment of the pandemic. If we want to see the core elements of New Labour's economic policy, privatization, and above all, through outsourcing, the, the cutting of the civil service in half to the point where the uh, um, Auditor General has to tell the House of Commons, frankly, you must realize that many departments can't do the things you're asking them to do. They've lost the capacity to plan, they've lost the capacity to implement. So outsourcing to the likes of Serco, and then you finish up with a, a government which turns automatically, ideologically, and because it's their friend, to the same organization, Serco, to implement the all-important uh, test track and trace and isolate program, which is supposed to be up and running, and I'm prepared to say it won't be efficiently running even at the end of this month. That's quite obvious. If you talk to anybody who at the local level knows how to do that, it's pretty obvious that's not going to happen. These are direct consequences of lab new Labour's economic policy. Same, uh, the story of the capacity to implement of the civil service runs through other aspects of the reaction to, to the pandemic. The breaking up of the National Health Service. Does it not strike us odd that the chief executive of the National Health Service has not been seen on the television screen more or less since the start of the pandemic? That's a remarkable phenomenon. The person who actually runs our service is not involved in the management of the pandemic. And that's because, again, <clears throat> New Labour presided over the breakup of the NHS, turning it into a system which was ripe for Andrew Lansley to convert into a, a fragmented system in which public health was reduced to a very small part, broken up, made vulnerable to cuts, and in which the authority for handling something like a mass epidemic was again fragmented in a way that it hadn't been before, and so on and so on. These were not side effects of New Labour's policy, they were consequences of the logic of running down central government and allowing the market to make uh, to determine what happened in one sector after another. I finished. John, do you want to come in there? Please. I just want to go back to this new labor business. I mean, first of all, I represent a mining seat, a former mining seat. When I arrived in 96, 
you know, sometime after the mines had closed, parts of my constituency were like, you might imagine Bosnia, most of the shopping areas had been smashed, they were empty, the roofs had been taken off, the windows were broken, people, I literally remember walking down one street in a village, I'm not going to say it, there wasn't a car in sight, but there were people still on horses in 96. The poverty was extraordinary. The levels of mental health uh, was quite frightening. Drugs were everywhere. And I came in 96, we were elected in 97. We did, we did put money into the communities. I represent 23 mining villages. We did put money in and we did begin to refinance the public services. And it will be a mistake to say we did nothing for a community like mine. But I don't, I, and people have often challenged me, even including people I represent, saying, well, why are you so unhappy with the Blair years? Because in the end, I don't think we fundamentally challenge the structures of power or, and wealth and dis distribution of income in our society. We left our society vulnerable to the 2008 crash. <clears throat> Uh, just want to reflect on one thing, which I, I, as I said, I worked with Gordon Brown for nearly two years. I went into Downing, number 10 Downing Street with Gordon Brown on the weekend we nationalised the banks. Um, but <clears throat> one of the fundamental programmes of the government, the Labour government, was to uh, tax credits to, uh, to help with poverty pay. Now, my argument was this, we were taking, we weren't taxing the most wealthy corporations or individuals, we were tackling the uh, slightly more affluent part of the working class, if you define the working class as anybody who has to sell the labour, traditional definition of working class. And that money was then being transferred into the pockets of the poor and into pensions. <clears throat> Good, you might say, is from some form of redistribution. But the fact is, it was, we effectively, the middle class taxpayers were subsidizing really poor employment practices and poverty pay. And we were disabling the capacity because we never re enabled the trade union movement and the working class movement more generally. We were disabling them from taking action directly against the employers to uh, remove poverty pay by collective action. Now, you may say that's uh, it, was, it was a cunning move. In the end, it wasn't, because the second thing we did to prop up people's incomes was we increased uh, deficit financing. People were able to borrow money on the back of, a, of an inflated house price. I remember speaking to miners, and they were saying, well, our house now, we paid 20000 for it, it's now worth 120 so we can borrow a bigger mortgage and go on a foreign holiday. And this uh, dependence on borrowing, which artificially inflated your spending power, gave you the impression that you were slightly more affluent than you were. So when the financial crash, crash occurred, and as we know, it hit mortgages and, and house prices, uh, people were unable to sustain their lives, which they had come to being told they could expect. And then there was pressure on the tax uh, take, which was coming from the middle class, while the richest in our society, the big corporations, were left untouched. But I think we were left exposed and then I suppose the final point to make, and I, I'm, a, I'm a personal friend of Gordon Brown, uh, but it doesn't mean I have to agree with his policies entirely. I think it was ridiculous to say we'd abolished the trade cycle. We'd ended boom and bust. And uh, he used to say in every budget, uh, 
you cannot abolish the trade cycle within a capitalist economy. It cannot be done. And we didn't sufficiently prepare ourselves uh, for that. Notwithstanding that, I think that the uh, 2008, this is my final point, 2008 was a classic moment where the state under a Labour government acts to protect the, the general interests of the wider society against market failure on a colossal scale by the banks. That was a moment in time which was right for a left uh, government to act beyond what we did. Now, don't get me wrong. <clears throat> I think history will record that that Labour government, uh, which I was part of for those, I attended every cabinet meeting of the last Labour government, uh, did something remarkable to stabilise the economy, but it stabilised it on terms which were basically favourable to uh, the accumulation of capital as is what the state does in a capitalist society. And uh, eventually we know what happened then, the Tories took over and dismantled the whole shebang. So that is what I think we mean when we talk about the um, ultimate, uh, I suppose, internal contradictions inside Blairism, which led to the collapse of uh, the whole new Labour project. And since then we've struggled. I suppose I did say finally, but I wanna make one final point. I helped uh, Miliband then to become uh, elected leader because I wanted, I didn't want uh, David Miliband to take over and it seemed to me Ed was the better of the ch uh, better choice. Immediately after the election, of his, he, he, immediately after him becoming the leader, he came straight to me and apart from we had a conversation with David Miliband, Ed then to me privately then said, we're gonna have to accept austerity. We've lost the argument. And we then went on to talk about we're going, the toys are going too far and too fast. If you're saying they're going too far and too fast, you're accepting the broad direction of travel. So we didn't fundamentally challenge the structures of power, and we haven't yet managed to break out of the neoliberal cycle. And obviously, we got stuck with the virus and before that with this complex dance which is going on within the capitalist class about how to deal with the European Union. I think the moment still waits for us to develop a, a left program, which is popular and which can seize this, the imaginations of the country. Thanks, John. I think that's a really good point. And I think that, that nicely brings us on to our last question as well, uh, which is that kind of, you know, in, in the book and what we've talked about in this session as well, is that one of the failings of the new left project uh, was that during this period, it wasn't, able to be sustained and it wasn't institutionalized. Um, so, and you know, ultimately just kind of disintegrated mm -hmm. uh, during this time. So what lessons does this teach us for today? You know, what, you know, what direction should, does the left need to focus on now in order to say, sustain the kind of momentum that we've built in the last few years? Um, we've had questions here about kind of, is it about pursuing more democracy? Is it about community activism? Uh, is it about kind of anti-austerity struggles? So what would you say is the direction forward? Is it about political education? I don't think there is a simple answer, but look, what I want to say is the, I, I remember 2008 and speaking at the Labour Party conference and, it, and the point I made was, here's you got a Labour government taking this dramatic action to try to protect the general interest, but, but accommodating to financial capital. What was required was a paradigm shift for the Labour Party. It needed a paradigm shift and it, need, 
And he needs to explain to the country, as not simply the Labour Party or to the trade union, to the whole country, that the financialization of the economy, its over-dependence on credit, and the openness of financial flows, which were distorting the nature of, uh, of capital completely, damaging uh, industry and all the other aspects of our economy, was, had been a wrong track for the country to go down. And that therefore, what was required was a paradigm shift. Look, who is responsible for this mess? The bankers and uh, the British establishment, the ruling class. They've taken down a track which left us like this. We now need to move on and create a rupture. But we didn't take that opportunity. Gordon said to me, the reason why he didn't do a paradigm shift was because he thought that the forces in society, particularly in the media and elsewhere, were so powerful that any attempt to explain public ownership as an act of progressive politics was doomed to failure, and therefore he set up that compromised system of public ownership, which we, which Leo described. But look, now we're in another moment. We're in a second crisis, and what the coronavirus does, it reveals the structures of our society in the most clear way. The millionaires and the billionaires do nothing to keep our country safe, or our people in work, or to maintain our civilization. It's the key workers, it's the working class who are dying, who are paid the least, whose services have been cut the most, who are protecting our community, our citizens, and the wider society. I think a paradigm shift now, which, and everybody can see when they look out the window, when they applause on a Thursday night, the, the true nature of our society. I think a paradigm shift now offers us the opportunity for a popular, a popular uh, narrative. So that's the sort of, if you like, the the what we say the overarching argument. Beyond that, then we have to increase the number of working class socialist MPs because we're out of touch quite often. We have to build new ways of organising in communities because the world of work has changed, and we have to change our culture so that it no longer, as a labour movement, is a top-down vertical structure. It needs to be network and horizontal like the rest of our society in a Google age 24-7 culture. Those things have to be done. And these are dramatic changes for the movement. But we can't do it if we choose to. Uh, I think the left has got an opportunity here, but we've got to grab it because it will pass us by. Again, I've lived through too many turning points in British history to think that it's going to move to the left unless we make it happen. Okay, what I was saying is that the crucial thing now is not to become demobilized the way the Campaign for Labour Party democracy did in the mid-1980s. The CLPD lost half of its membership uh, in 1983-4, and then lost by a year later had lost two-thirds of its membership. The really crucial thing is to try to infuse the spirit of activism that is, has been regenerated in British society into the Labour Party and not allow the party apparatus and the party leadership in the PLP to be fearful of that. Uh, that's what happened in the 1980s and the danger now is the same thing will happen again. In this sense, it's absolutely crucial 
that this, this leadership campaign in momentum should not be full of recriminations, but should be orienting to figure out how momentum can become the kind of educating, mobilizing force at the community level, especially in those constituencies in the Midlands in the North, where the sense of community has been so destroyed uh, deliberately uh, by uh, what has taken place in the British economy. Uh, that is the, I think the, if you're gonna draw a lesson from the 1980s, it needs to be that uh, activism at the base through the party is crucial. And that's going to involve still being concerned with changing the party apparatus, not simply holding on to socialist policies. That was the message of the Labour New Left. Uh, it's crucial that people hold on to what Jeremy represented as an MP and why he got elected as leader, which is that through this long winter, it would be him who was out at the picket lines. It would be MPs like him and John uh, and, and John McDonnell uh, who would be uh, joining the anti-globalization, anti-capitalist protests. Uh, they were trying to still link even the Blairite Labour Party in that way to activism. Uh, of course, they were doing it as a small minority. A major change took place with Jeremy's leadership. It's still the largest membership party now in Europe on the left. And it's crucial that that not be pissed away, if I can use that expression. Uh, the labor left has a much stronger base in the TWT and in momentum than the labor left did with the CLPD in the mid 80s. And it's the really crucial steps forward are gonna to have to be taken through the continuation of that commitment to democratization, mobilization and education at the base. Thanks Leo. Um, we love that message, obviously. Um, Colin, do you want to have any final words as well? Sure, just just uh, one point that is connects policy and organization and activism at the base. The thing that obsessed the new labor leadership and has in a way also obsessed in a different way, uh, the Corbyn leadership was the power of the media there was a view that with the rise of social media and the decline of readership in the mainstream newspapers, the advantage enjoyed by the right was shifting. Uh, we now know better that that's not the case, that money can actually manage the social media in a very negative way, and indeed has done so. My feeling is that this will be a chronic problem for the left unless it is faced in a new way. And my feeling is that the myriad of activists in Momentum who brilliantly pioneered the use of social media as a in, a, in the campaign, especially of uh, 2015, 16 and 17, um, <clears throat> they need to be brought together with 
the academic researchers who are overwhelmingly progressive, who work in this field and are more than willing to become, to provide the uh, labor leadership as socialists in academic world used to in 50 years earlier and hasn't been done for a long time, certainly not under new labor. But we need to bring together the grassroots experts in social media with the academic researchers on media in general to come up with an intelligent, broad-based program for dealing with, for regulating the media, using the comparative knowledge that exists about the many ways in which this happens in the world, for a public that I think is ready now to accept the absolute necessity of cleaning up what has become a very disgusting, basically truth-averse field. Uh, and the fact that the mainstream media is still controlled by a handful of right-wing billionaires and bigots is not the, the crucial thing. The crucial thing, again, is to be positive, to come forward and enlist the people who do this, who know it and understand it at the grassroots, with the people with the comparative knowledge and the historical experience, and in some cases, quite a lot of experience of policy making, policy working with uh, people in the leadership of the party in the past. I think this is a, a, an element that has been missing and needs to be thought about. All right, thank you very much, um, Colin. Uh, thank you all for, for the great responses for that very modest uh, list of what, uh, what we should do uh, next. Um, we're nearly at the end of the call. Uh, first of all, I just wanted to apologize for uh, the technical difficulties. I personally blame Tony Blair. Um, probably other things might have uh, might have been going on there. Um, and just a plug for universal uh, public broadband as well being made in front of our eyes. Um, just a few more things before we sign off. Firstly, we wanted to remind everyone, of course, as always, to look after yourselves. Um, as uh, Colin and others said, support the NHS and all healthcare workers in any way uh, you can. I think that's been made uh, clear in this call as well. Um, TWT are going to try to organize as many online spaces for people to interact as possible. Uh, we've created a step-by-step -step guide for supporting people to run political education and organizing meetings online themselves. Um, we'll post the link in the chat, so please take a look at, uh, take a look at that. Um, and please keep an eye out for reading groups and other kinds of political education, organizing meetings, um, and of course, tune into this call, same time in two weeks, 8 p.m. And I'm going to just give you one more reminder once again to, to join the TWT Supporters Network. Uh, political education on the left is more important now than ever, and the crisis poses a real threat to smaller organizations like us. So go to theworldtransform.org support or find the link we've just posted in the chat. Um, thank you so much, especially to John. I really, really enjoyed all of that, or everything that you had to say, um, especially about, um, you know, everything, all the changes that have gone on in the last 20 years and, and what we need to do to keep working within the Labour Party. Um, there would be a huge round of applause right now uh, um, if we weren't online. Exactly. <laughs> I loved that. Thank you so much. And thank you.